Thank you so much. It's a real joy to be back with you again, and uh, so enjoyed the day yesterday. Thank you for being here this morning. Pray I can be a blessing to you. I'm going to be speaking to you from John's Gospel and chapter 2, famous story. I'll read it with you now. Uh, I'm from reading from the NASB, which uh, may... Uh, vary here and there if you're using NIV or ESV or one of the other translations, but it won't be very different. Okay, so John chapter 2 verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour hasn't yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now. Take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and didn't know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine till now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Father, thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you for the joy of singing your praise. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for every experience we've had of your faithfulness in our lives. And Father, we... Thank you now as we open your word together for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We thank you so that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So Father, we ask you right now for the Holy Spirit to come, be our teacher, lead us into truth, open our hearts, our minds, our understanding, our wills. Come, Lord, come into our hearts with your truth by your Spirit, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some time ago, one of the uh, elders at the church in Brighton, where I have been for some 30 years, he turned up on a Sunday morning uh, with his family and uh, sat up on the bleachers at the side. And uh, he sat there, wife and children, and opened the little news sheet, which is uh, similar to the one that you have here, and uh, his name is Steve Horn, and he looked at it, and he opened it, and he turned to the second page, the third page, and read, today, Steve Horn is preaching at Heathfield. <laughs> he said goodbye to his wife, he shot out of, the, out of the building, got in the car, and drove quickly to Heathfield frightening experience. I remember once when I was at Stonely Bible Week where, you know, in the end it was 30,000 just about uh, at Stonely, the two weeks, the 15,000 each week, and uh, it was a massive privilege to be on that platform and uh, to, to speak to the many thousands there, 
I remember one evening vividly uh, when at the end of the worship, and my friend Nigel Ring was giving the announcements, and I, I was sitting at the back of this very large platform, and uh, as I sat there, I opened my Bible just to look at my notes before the word I was about to bring. And as I opened my Bible, um, there were no notes there. I mean, there's last night's notes, but not tonight's notes. And I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. They're not there. My notes are not here. And I look out, and there's, I mean, there's thousands of people. And I think, oh, Father. So I, I, I just quickly uh, got up and walked as carefully as I could out of the place. And I ran across Stonely Camp. And uh, there were mothers out there with their little babies, you know. What's Terry Virgo running up there for? And I ran. I got my notes, and I ran back again. And uh, to my... Great thanks, I found there was one extra item which I'd forgotten about, which had just filled that gap, and people hadn't kind of noticed. So I just got back, you know, so everything was fine, and uh, slightly puffed, carried on. Uh, now, now, why am I telling these stories? Well, they're stories about a, a crisis that almost happened, a tragedy that almost took place, and yet which kind of saved at the 11th hour. And really, this is what this story is about. It's about... A wedding in a, a small village, Cana of Galilee. Uh, I've actually had the privilege, I've been to Israel a couple of times, went to Cana, and it's a little town now, but it would have been a tiny village. And I guess it would have been the wedding of that year, the thing that people looked forward to came about. And I guess many from the village would have been invited. And it was about to be the wedding that you never forgot because the shame of it, they ran out of wine, a disaster. And uh, that's kind of under the surface. Nobody knows about it at the moment. Uh, it, publicly, the wedding's going on, everything's fine. But under the surface, there's a crisis looming. And there's a kind of a whisper, they're running out of wine. And one or two people know. And the Bible's written to help us in life, because we hit crises like this where we suddenly feel like hey, I'm running out. I'm running out of time. I'm running out of money. Running out of energy. Running out of answers. I'm wondering if I'm going to make it. And we can have kind of panic moments where, yeah, nobody else knows. Here we are in church. Hi, how are you? But under the surface, there's a panic coming. I don't know if I can keep this up. Maybe we're a single mum and you think, I don't know how to cope any longer. Or maybe a student, and you've taken on a course, and you think, this is just too much for me. I should never have gone along this way. It's scaring me. Exams are looming. How am I going to do this? Actually, you can be a very successful businessman, and, and you just find that instead of all being well, people have seen your skills and are drawing you into more and more responsibility. And then at church, you're thinking, wow, this is a good guy. Let's give him a bit more responsibility. And your wife at home and the family saying, hey, we don't get to see you. What's going on here? You can be in all sorts of settings where you feel, I don't know if I've got it. I can't keep things going. And it's all under the surface at the moment. Maybe nobody else knows what you're feeling in your heart. Here we are at a wedding. Nobody else knows. But the wine is running out and they're in trouble. So let's just look at this. It's also good to remember why John wrote his gospel. And he tells us quite plainly towards the end in John chapter 20, verses 30, 31. He says this, Therefore many other signs 
Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so John didn't just write stuff down. He wrote with purpose. He had to select. There were so many things that happened. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he selected certain things. And he calls seven of the dramatic miracles signs. He's the only gospel writer that uses that word. And some of them are very dramatic. It's a man born blind and he can see. Uh, and then Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. It's a, it's a sign. It's more than a healing. It's saying more. And there are other miracles that are called signs, seven of them in John's gospel. And this is the first one, as we read together, this first sign Jesus fulfilled at the wedding of Cana. That's where this first sign was done. And John's purpose, he says, is that having written this, that we might believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is actually the promised Messiah. And that believing, you might have life. This is the wonder that when we look at and consider the truth of the Bible, we can come to a place where we understand that Jesus Christ isn't just a healer or a teacher. He's more than that. He's the very Son of God. And when you believe it, something happens in your heart. You begin to step into another life. And so John is motivated in writing these amazing stories to stimulate faith and certainty in our hearts. That's why he's written about this particular sign. So let's have that in our minds. That's what John's writing for. He wants to encourage faith. Okay, so let's look at the story. There's a wedding going on, and the commentators tell us this, that these wedding parties could last up to seven days. Imagine a party that lasts seven days. I mean, they knew how to party. This is an amazing thing. And Jesus is at this wedding. It's interesting that Jesus' first sign, dramatic demonstration, is done at a party. Now, that may not fit the image that many would have of Jesus. Their thoughts about Jesus are not a man who's a party-goer. You don't expect him to be at a party. You expect him to be in temples and synagogues and things. But the very first time he demonstrates something of his majesty is at a party. And that's fascinating to me. I hope we all have that kind of Jesus, a Jesus who hasn't just come to be with us when we were in church, but wants to be with us in life. He's happy to be at a wedding party where actually he's not the center of attraction. At the wedding, the bride and groom, they're the center of attraction. And he's, he's happy to be there. He's happy to be there. He didn't come that we might have meetings and have them abundantly. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The message translation says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He came among men. He came among men and women. He, he was accessible even in life. He wanted to, to come amongst people. And uh, I've never been to a Jewish wedding, but I've seen pictures, documentaries, movies, and they, they look like they're having a good time. And uh, you see these guys with their arms around one another, dancing along. Uh, and, I, and I don't think of Jesus being kind of a wallflower, looking on and thinking, Ooh. I think he would have been there. He's there, happy to be at the wedding. He's invading normal life. He's becoming flesh and dwelling among us. This is the miracle 
of the incarnation. We sang a song based on the creed at the beginning of our meeting, this wonderful God who came in human form and lived among us, even at a party. Now, when Jesus began his ministry, we're told he was baptized and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and the Father from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm delighted. And then he's driven into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And one of the things Satan says is this, why don't you perform some sign? Go to the temple and hurl yourself down. But Jesus said, I don't want to do my first sign at the temple. I want to do my first sign at a party. And it's very different to what we would expect. He's not a religious figure in that sense. He's, a, 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 he's one who comes amongst us where we are. He's at this party. He's happy to be at this party. And just to mention this too, it's not just any old party it is a wedding and I guess if you've attended a wedding lately you'll hear those familiar words like Jesus by his presence at the wedding of Cana uh, just blessed and recognized marriage you get those words often expressed at the wedding event Jesus by his presence was endorsing marriage yes Jesus is for marriage God is for marriage We're living in a generation which is tending to turn its back on marriage. It's tending to say, well, let's just move in. Uh, The numbers of people committing themselves to marriage is decreasing. I went to see an old friend of mine, a friend I had before I became a Christian some while back, and we're just showing photos, and he said, oh, your kids got married. I said, yeah. He said, none of mine did. They've moved in with people. And and there's a, a generation where marriage is kind of forgotten but we just need to understand this from the beginning God is for marriage he's for covenant relationship he's for phrases like this forsaking all others I give myself to you there's something very beautiful about marriage and God is for it these days people offer another invitation Girls hear questions like this. Will you, yes, move in with me? Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, it's not like it's got a good track record. It's not like the statistics prove that's a good way. Actually, the stats tend to prove the opposite. It's not terribly successful. But people are throwing away the privilege of covenant love for experimentation. And just let's see how it goes. Jesus is for marriage. And Jesus is for marriage that expresses covenant love it says in Micah this is what the Lord requires of you O man to do justly love mercy and walk humbly with your God famous statement of the Bible that phrase love mercy the word mercy is a a very rich Hebrew word chesed and actually it's it's such a rich word that when Tyndale first translated the Bible he, he invented words like loving kindness tender mercies, steadfast love. It's such a rich word. It's translated lots of different ways because it's it's a wonderful word. But the actual root of the word is covenant. Covenant. This is what the Lord requires of you, O man, to love covenant love, to love mercy, to love chesed, to love through the difficult patches, to love when we live in a culture where I don't like it, throw it away, get another one. We don't mend things anymore. We get another one. 
but the Lord loves covenant love. And Jesus is at a wedding. He's there to celebrate marriage. Perhaps we shouldn't be amazed when you think the Bible itself starts with a marriage. And statements, right at the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, right there at the beginning. Husband and wife cleaving to one another. And then right through to the book of Revelation, what do we find at the end? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, yeah, marriage is a big deal. It's a big deal. So perhaps it's not so surprising. Maybe that's something to do with it being a sign that he's at that setting. Remember John the Baptist, who was hugely successful, probably the greatest prophet in Jewish history, led almost a national revival. And they said to John, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? We've not seen anything like this. Are you the Messiah? He said, no, no, I am the friend of the bridegroom. That's how Jesus gets introduced. The bridegroom is coming, the one who's seeking a bride. And that's what the Bible ends with, this this incredible marriage supper, the bride of Christ being brought to Christ. So yes, so this is a wonderful thing. Jesus is at a wedding. He's celebrating it. He's aware of his calling, his identity. He knows what he's doing. He's very happy to be at the party. He's happy to be in that setting. He's not an ascetic. He's not hostile to parties. He's delighted to be present and to be part of the celebration. Okay, so that's the setting. Then we get this unusual conversation where Mary comes to him and says, they've no more wine. This secret that's under the surface, this trouble we're in, there's no more wine. But what is strange is the way Jesus responds to her. And he says this, woman, what has that got to do with us? Or depending on which translation you use, woman, why do you involve me, the NIV? What have I got to do with you, is the way it's translated here. Well, it's a funny answer. First of all, it just says woman. Now, if you have the NIV, you'll find the word dear is in there. And to be honest, you can cross it out. It's not in the text. They've put it in to soften it, because it's a funny way to talk to your mother. Woman, they think, better put dear in here. It, it isn't there. It's the Greek word is gune. It's there on its own. It's the same word Jesus used in John 4 when he's speaking to the woman at the well who's had five husbands and the guy she's with now is not a husband. Woman. But actually from the cross, he looks down on Mary and says, Woman, behold your son. He says to John, behold your mother. So that's said with real tenderness. And I can't think, how could Jesus be even thinking about anybody else? when he's going through that. So it's expressing real tenderness there, but it's exactly the same there. Gune, woman. It seems harsh, but even, even more is the phrase that comes next. What do I have to do with you? Why do you involve me, NIV? If you, if you literally translate it word for word, this is what you would have to write down. What to me and to you. That's word by word. And of course, it doesn't mean much in English. What to me and to you. What's most often translated is, what have you got to do with me? And if you know your Bible, you think, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that in the Gospels? What have you got to do with me? It's exactly the same phrase. And you've heard it in situations like this. It's not the only one, but one like this, where Jesus crosses the lake and there's legion. And he's full of demons. 
And Jesus is drawing near to Legion, and Legion turns around and says, What have they got to do with me? <laughs> we are many. He's full of demons. And I don't think Jesus would have said it to Mary like that. What have you got to do with me? But uh, he's, he's nevertheless, he's putting up a strange barrier. He's kind of saying, look, see these demons, when they say it, it's like saying, you're from one world, I'm from another world. What have we got in common? What is going on here? That's the kind of thing that's behind this phrase. And it occurs two or three times where demons encounter Jesus in the Gospels. Here it's him talking to his mother. What's that all about? What is he saying? Well, I'd like to suggest an answer. I think, I think this is part of it. Jesus, we're told, when he was a small child, was at the temple with his mother and father. Uh, they begin the homeward journey. On the journey, they realize he's not in the extended family. He's not with any of the aunts and uncles. And Hey, Jesus isn't here. And they go back, and they find him. And then it says this, he went and was obedient to them. That's the only comment we get on Jesus before his public ministry. He was an obedient child. He was a perfect child. He'd lived in this home, and uh, through his childhood, through his teenage years, stop and think, a perfect teenager. Oh. And then through his 20s. And the Bible says there were other sons and daughters, Joseph and Mary. But you'll find that Joseph doesn't occur, doesn't appear, Later in the gospel stories, he just disappears. There's no comment, but he's not there at the end. He's not visible much as the story goes on. And most commentators would suggest probably Joseph died young. And so Mary would have had this family. And Jesus would have been, as it were, the oldest brother. And I think she would often have turned to him. He would have been perfect. I mean, a beautiful son carrying responsibility, standing no doubt where his father would have stood in terms of Joseph's role to Mary, always being helpful, always being kind. That's what one would imagine, eh? a perfect, kind son. And now they're in this crisis, they're out of wine. Jesus, they're out of wine. Maybe she thought, he'll rush out and get some. You know, he'd go and get some wineskins. Because, well, he always sorts things. And instead of that, she hits this strange, what have I got to do with you? What's this all about? Well, I would, I would suggest this, that this, this wedding event, right at the beginning of the gospel stories, represents a kind of overlap moment where Jesus is at a wedding, as we often are. You know, you get someone says, don't forget the wedding. Oh, yeah, I'll be there. It's in the diary. You know, you're going to be at the wedding. But Jesus has, says in the story, he's begun to get some disciples. So there's an overlap from his kind of social world, mother, family, local people, and now this public world, disciples, begun in the ministry, the Spirit of God's upon him, he's the Messiah of God. And these two are overlapping in this wedding. And Mary's turning to him and sort of calling him back into the world he was in, of just being there and helpful. When actually now he's started something quite other than that. And so she hits a kind of wall. D.A. Carson, great theologian and commentator, says this, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry 
his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Right? That last phrase, he's declaring at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He is not a tame lion. He is one who doesn't jump when you say jump. He's not there kind of for us. He's not there just to meet our problems. It's not there, Lord, I need a parking space, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Parking space. Or, you know, rub the, rub the lamp, out comes the genie. Uh, this, please, get it done, get it done. And we can, we can, if we're not careful, maybe not even thinking about it, we can come to the place where we think, he's there for us. That's the deal. You've got God. I mean, you've got life, you've got your career, you've got your family, and you've got God. It's really nice. Because it sorts things out for you. And we can, have, we can have life. We've got our lives, and then there's God over here. He helps us in crises and challenges. And that's how it can seem to be. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it is. I'm not here to be manipulated. I'm not your genie. That's not the way it is. You might say, well, doesn't he want to solve this? He solves this big time. He solves this problem. That's why it's in the Bible. The story is amazing. He solves it. He's not indifferent, but he solves it his way. He solves it his way. And actually, it's very fascinating. You'll find that Mary, instead of being offended, which many of us might have been, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. It's a brilliant answer, isn't it? I mean, you could easily be like, how dare you speak to me like that? I'm your mother. Instead, she, she comes through. Look, whatever he says, understand this. Do what he says. And to be honest, that's not the whole of the gospel. Those of us who were here yesterday looked at the whole grace aspect of the gospel. But this is a big part of the gospel. It's a big part of what it is to be a Christian. Learning that what he says is what life's about. What he says is the key to life. It's his word that shapes the way we live. It's a key word that she's saying. And actually, it's interesting to see what happens at this wedding. Because he solves it. But how does he solve it? He doesn't solve it by saying, okay, don't panic, I'll go and buy some wine. He solves it by taking over. That's how he solves it. And gives instructions. And listen, his instructions are explicit. They are unreasonable. And they require obedience and faith. It's true, isn't it? How does he solve this? He invites people into another world. Come out of your panic. Come into my world. I give you instructions. They're crazy. They require obedience and faith. What I'm going to say to you now is totally unreasonable. But what he's doing is inviting these people, come into my world, come into my ability, come into what I can do, step into my situation. And it kind of blows your mind away. Well, what does he say? What does he say? It's like Jesus saying, fill the water pots with water. You think, I don't understand. I can imagine Jesus saying, which part of 
fill the water pots, don't you understand? Which part don't you understand? But that's how it is with Jesus. It's very simple. You say, and actually you can say, like, Lord, Lord, we are out of wine. And Jesus says, right, fill the water pots. And then Jesus, you're not listening? Listen, there's no problem. There's no problem with the water pots. It's wine we're out of. We've run out of wine. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fill the water pots. No, no, Jesus, please listen. It's wine that's the trouble. No, 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 step into my world. Step into my world. Step into listening to my voice and obeying it. Even when it doesn't sound as though it makes sense. I'm inviting you into another world. This first sign he showed. Beloved, if you're a Christian, you've been invited into another world. Where Jesus gives the word. Where Jesus gives the instructions. Where what Jesus says goes. The disciples learn that as they go forward. As they're learning to have fellowship with Jesus. One day they've been fishing. He says, have you caught anything? Nothing. He says, right, throw the net the other side. They could have said, "Uh, Jesus, we fishermen, you carpenter, forget it. No, no, they said this, we have fished all night. In other words, we know about fishing, you do it at night. But at your word, we'll do it. See, they're learning, they're learning. If he says so, you come into his world. You come into the world where he's the king. You come into, actually, a supernatural world where Jesus is in charge. And these people who turn the world upside down have come here, it says, in the Gospels, or at least in the book of Acts, where they, people have learned, learning, you don't just go by what you think is the best, what's right for you, get into problems, we're panicking, God, get me out of this. The way he gets out is to take control. The way we get free is say, Lord, you be Lord of my life. You be Lord of my life. I'll do it your way from now on. I accept your call. I'll let you be king. Bring in your kingdom. That's a, this is a sign that's happening. You see, sometimes we're scared of that. We're scared of saying to God, okay, you choose. I know when I was a young Christian, I was very scared of that. I'd hear people say, surrender. Mm, sounds scary to me. If I, if I surrender, I'll find myself in some jungle in Africa. You know, I don't want to surrender. I would resist that. I would hold back from that. And in fact, when I became a Christian, I, I'd never heard the gospel before. My sister had been in London. Billy Graham came to London. She came home a Christian. She said, I've become a Christian. I said, how do you become a Christian? She said, I've been born again. On earth is born again. I've never heard such stuff. My parents were not believers. And she led me to Christ that night. She said, I know my sins are forgiven. I know I'm going to live forever. I said, how can you know this? And as she spoke... It all kind of, I suddenly saw it. Wow, Jesus is alive. I can know my sins are forgiven. I suddenly knew it was true. And I knelt in my home and I asked Jesus into my heart. It's a phrase we've invented. I asked Jesus into my heart. It's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about things like this. He said to Simon Peter, follow me. He left his nets and followed him. He's now the center of gravity. He didn't stay where he was and say, you come in. He got out and followed. That's what it is to be a believer, to be honest. It's whatever he says. It's leaving and cleaving to this new one. Stepping into his world, letting him be in charge. I know for myself, I was a Christian for some four or five years. Before I'd ever encountered that, before I had any experience of that, and I was not doing very well. I was not a very happy Christian. And often I was running out. I thought, what do I do? 
I was in church one Sunday morning. And that's the only thing that had happened in my life. I started going to church on Sunday morning. Nothing else much had changed. I was making all the calls. And one Sunday morning, I just heard the sermon. And when I'd started, I meant it. You know, I was so excited. I thought, wow, I've got eternal life. This is magnificent. And I went to, my sister was going to John Stott's church in London. I went to John Stott's church. He preached a lovely gospel. I went forward, shook the great man's hand. I was pretty excited. I got baptized. But as time went by, it was I who was organizing my life. And, I, and I, it's, just like, it's like you have a moment, even say, when you are baptized, you say, Lord, have my life. And you kind of mean it. And then as time goes by, it's like, it's like he's got the wheel, you know. I'm a, you drive, you show me. And then there's something on the horizon, you think, wow, I want that. I want him, I want her. I want, I'm not sure he's going there. So you say, uh, I'll have the wheel right now, Lord, thank you. And you steer, and you take charge. And then sometimes you do that again, and again. And whereas at the beginning you meant it, you say, Lord, have my life. But several times now you've said, well, I'm making this call. I'm making this choice. And really Jesus is kind of like a passenger in your car. He's not a significant leader of your life. And you can drift. So for me, when I heard this message... It was based on a verse in Galatians that said this, you did run well, who has hindered you that you no longer obey the truth? And it went like a sword into my heart. You did run well, you meant it. What's happened? What's happened? And I felt like I was the only guy in the church. I felt God speak to me. I thought he said to me, I want your life. And I thought he said this, I want it now. And it was almost like this, it's now or never. And for the first time, I felt I'm being confronted by God, not just to you know, sort out my problems for me, but I want your life. I'll give you. And you see, he doesn't, I was scared of that. I thought, oh, give my life, but he'll crush me. No, the story doesn't say he crushed them. The story says he gave them gallons of wine. He didn't crush them. He met their need, but he did it by being in charge. That's how it works. And so I had another kind of crisis. I said, Lord... Have my life. I went home and prayed. I made lots of choices. Went through a bit of a difficult patch, actually. But from now on, he's in charge. Changed everything. Have you done that yet? Have you done that yet? Have you said, Lord, I give you my life. I want you, whatever you say. I really want to learn to live your way. I don't just want you solving problems. I want to learn how to live for you. Or maybe you say, well, I did that. When I was baptized or when something, I gave my life. But see, what happens is you've taken that wheel back. You think, hmm, I know now I'm, I know I'm making the choices. I'm in charge. And this morning, the Lord Jesus is inviting some of us to come back and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want you to be in charge. I'm, I'm, maybe we're in a crisis. Maybe, maybe we're in this situation. I don't know how I'm going to cope. I'm in difficulty. No one else knows about it at the moment. The wine's running out. I can be in our marriages sometimes. We're scared. The, the wine's running out in our marriage. We think, where's the sparkle? We're in trouble. Maybe you've told a close friend, we're in trouble. 
Or maybe you're just in your own heart. Whatever the situation, you can feel, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Beloved, you're not meant to make it. You're meant to learn to trust him. He makes it. He leads us through. He takes us through life. But he can only do it when we let him make the choices, make the calls, and put our confidence in him. That's the way it works. That's the way we resolve it. And sometimes we say, it's like this water. We would say, some of us maybe have never even heard the gospel. We say, I would love peace like you people have got peace. And we say, well, we'd like to talk to you about a cross, about Jesus. Oh, no, no, I'm not interested in what happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, Tell me about how you got peace. You seem to have peace, you people. So we want to talk to you about Jesus. It's like, we've run out of wine. Well, fill the water pots. Huh? No, you have to come to Jesus. Because your problem's bigger than you realize. And God's solving of our problem is to send his son who took our place. And God punished him on your behalf. But God provided a sacrifice and dealt with it. He took all our guilt and nailed it on him. And we go free. We're forgiven. But he says, come on, give me your life. I'll lead you. I'll be your shepherd. I'll care for you. I'll provide for you. But you just need to follow me. You need to let me be the one who's in charge. And the disciples learn that. They start living that way. And so towards the end of those three years, Jesus says, we're going to have the Passover. Where are we having the Passover? Oh, you'll find a guy. Follow him. He'll show you a room. So they go, oh, there's a guy carrying a vase. Well, women carry vases. Men don't. There's a man. He said it would be this. They follow the guy, and there's a room. And it's prepared, like he said it would be. Then he says, go up, you'll find a donkey that no one's ever... Go up, find the donkey, and if someone says, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of him. So we go, oh, there's a donkey. The Lord has need. Oh, great. There it goes again. Whatever he says to you, you'll find you have a story to tell. And some of you have walked with Jesus for years, you could tell many stories of how he thought, that's impossible, but he did it. That seems, but again, he, no, he rescued, he stepped in. And you get to live with God, you get to live in his world, in his kingdom. He's not a distant figure, he's not an occasional guest, he's not just a genie, he's there. And maybe you used to know him like that, but it's not like it used to be. I feel that particularly this morning. There's some of us who say, well, it used to be like that. And Jesus is saying, come on, come back. I want to come right into your life again. I want you to live that way, whatever he says to you. I want to be part of your life. I want to solve your problems. I want to lead you into plans that I have for you. But it needs that kind of, yes, Lord, I want to do that. He's inviting you this morning. Will you come freshly to him? Will you let him solve your problems? Will you let him give the instructions? Oh yes, instructions, specific, difficult, require faith. He leads you through. Let's stand to pray, please. Let's come to the Lord Jesus. He's here now. He's full of love for you. He wants to renew you in his love. He wants to freshly engage with you. Or it may be you've never done that. You've never said, Lord, 
I just want to live for you. I want to live your way. I want to step into this kind of Christianity. That actually I don't know if I've ever been in it. And this morning you can step into it. Just step out of your chair. Come and be prayed for. Come and express your love. Come say, Lord, I come freshly to you. Maybe, maybe it is that you think, Lord, it, it used to be like that. I loved it when it was like that. But I know, I know it's not like that anymore. Lord, I want to come to you. I want to come to you. Lord Jesus, just ask you right now, as you're present with us, our, our wonderful tender shepherd, please call people to fresh embrace of your love, confidence in your word, a fresh expression of yes, Lord, to you. I pray that people will come to you and say yes this morning.